0: Good to see all of you. A couple of announcements before we get started this morning. Um, one, one of our beloved congregation members, uh, if you don't know or aren't aware, was recently diagnosed with breast cancer and had surgery earlier this week. Um, we can praise the Lord. Surgery went well. No complications. Uh, she's doing well. Um, a couple of us went up and visited uh, the family while she was in surgery. It was a long surgery. And so the next day, uh, I... I've been going to sleep earlier these days, I'm an old man now. Um, so I fall asleep, I wake up, and I had a missed call from her the day after this 12 hour surgery, and she's in ICU. And immediately I'm panicking, like, oh no, what, what happened, like, what went wrong? And then I saw she left a voicemail. It was like a minute and a half long voicemail. So I listened to the voicemail. Hey Mike, just want to say thanks for coming by, and then a lot to the family, and a lot to me, and on and on and on and on. And I was like, well, I guess we can say that the surgery did not steal her Christ-likeness, okay? Um, If you know of it, you know that's just the person she is. Um, And I'm like, you're in ICU. Why do you have your phone? Who gave that to you? You're calling and saying thank you for everyone who's come. Um, So we are putting together a gift basket for her if you'd like to donate. Um, Cheryl Peppel is going to be our primary person for that today. She's in the children's ministry. Um, If you'd like, uh, I can introduce you to her so that you can give something to her. Uh, we'll give that gift back to her. We're gonna make sure that there are no names on it, so she doesn't write thank you notes. Okay, uh, just from the church. And so keep praying for her. She recovers, but things are looking well. I also want to let you know. I don't think we formally introduced. We ha- do have some new band members uh, as of late. We know Brooks, person has been playing with us for a while, um, was baptized a year or so ago with us. Um, Will Pensack has joined us on guitar, and so Will is a student at Fort Bend Christian, uh, one of my former students. Uh, and then Alex Amundson right here has been joining us on the piano, and so if you don't know them, say hi to them, let them know how thankful you are that they are uh, leading us in worship. And then today we have a special guest, Tyler uh, Thompson on the drums with us. Yeah, give it up for Tyler. I almost don't want to preach today, just watch him drum some more. Um, and so we appreciate his time, uh, and hopefully we'll see him around uh, some more as well. So with that said, um, let's get started. If you have your Bible, let's turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 is where we'll be this morning as we continue on through our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. This will be our last Sunday in Mark for a few weeks. Um, Starting next week, we'll go back to one of our perennial favorite sermon series called Finding God in Your iPod. We'll look at some pop culture songs and then compare them to scripture and see um, what the prophets of our secular age are trying to tell us and how perhaps it's um, found in corresponding literature in the Bible. So we'll do that for three weeks Um, Don't forget, next week is National Back to Church Sunday. And so we're um, encouraging everyone to invite a friend to come to service with you. Uh, One invitation can have an eternal impact. Okay, and So um, your friends, your family, your neighbors, uh, make sure you give them an invite. I know it can be awkward, but 20 seconds of courage. Again, most of us are Christians and and are going to have this eternal life because at some point somebody invited us to something. Someone started up a conversation with us. and So um, let me encourage you to, to do that. We will be having a potluck after um, service next week as we have some baptisms as well going on. Uh, so bring some food, sign up for that in the hallway on the credenza. There will be a sign-up sheet for that potluck. Speaking of food, I hope you're hungry. Okay, because we're going to dig into the text this morning. And we're also going to get another one of Mark's sandwiches. Um, So if you've been walking through with Mark for us, we we know he tells stories in sandwich format, okay? So he'll start with a story, and then he'll have a different story in the middle of it, interrupting it, and then he'll go back to that same story at the end. You've got bread, meat, and then bread again. So the passage we're going to look at this morning is in the sandwich format as well. It's a beautiful passage about extravagant worship, extravagant sacrifice, and it will have a lot to challenge us. So we'll pick it up in Mark chapter 14, um, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we're getting closer to Jesus' crucifixion. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So there's a plan in place to arrest Jesus, eventually get him killed. But this is Passover time, so there's so many Jews, thousands and thousands, cramming into Jerusalem to celebrate the freedom that they got from Egypt and the Exodus. And Jesus still has a a fairly popular following. And so they know that if they were to arrest him in public, it might cause some kind of a riot, which is the last thing the Jewish people wanted, um, especially during Passover time. If the Roman leaders see a whole bunch of Jewish people starting to get unruly, they're going to bring in the riot police, okay? And no one wants that to have happened. So they need to arrest Jesus stealthily in a back alley or around a corner. Um, So there's this plot in place. Now, we get interrupted with another story, the meat of this sandwich. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, reclining at a table. So Jesus is not at the temple. He's at Bethany. Remember, he's kind of separating himself from the temple. Not only is he at a different city, he's at the house of a leper, someone who wouldn't even be welcome at the temple, right? We know Jesus reclines with these outcasts, with people the rest of the world, even the Jewish leaders rejected. He's reclining with Simon the leper, And all of a sudden, out of the blue, uninvited, not a guest, a woman comes with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, which is a very expensive, very um, rare perfume, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, if you don't get more details on that, I kind of wonder what the scenario is here, okay? someone came in to service right now and shattered a glass and poured it on my head, I would have some questions. (laughs) Um, you know, does Jesus here, does it interrupt the meal? Or is he like, this happens all the time, just don't even worry about it. Um, she comes in, she anoints him, she pours his oil and perfume on his head. And then in verse 4, there are some there who were saying to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? Just shoved all over his face, why was it wasted? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Now, 300 dinara is about a year's worth of wages. So that for some of us, $35,000. For some of us, $55,000. For some of us, $150,000. It's a lot of money though, right? A year's worth of wages. And these people kind of have a point. I mean, I can, I can understand being sympathetic to this viewpoint, Right? that's a lot of good that you could do for the poor. If someone came into church today and offered us $150,000, and we decided to um, redo the roof and build this nice little steeple, um, we would have some dissenting voices in our church. We would say maybe there's better ways to use that money. Maybe we should give some of that money away, just, just straight off the top, just give it away to some organizations to help the poor and to help those in need in our community. Maybe we should spend that money in other places. Um, it's a legitimate question. Did she just waste something so valuable just to pour it over Jesus' head? Um, Jesus maybe is like, did I smell that bad, right? All this perfume. Um, and so there's this question about economics given to the poor. And they scolded her. And Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing. You were word, call us. She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them but you will not always have me. He says there's a temporal aspect going on here. I won't always be around. I'm about to die. And you can always do good to the poor. She said, um, she's done what she could. Jesus says she's anointed my body beforehand for burial. Um, So in the Jewish world, you'd anoint people for four different reasons. You would anoint a king... As king, you'd anoint a priest to be a priest. You'd anoint a prophet to be a prophet. And then you'd anoint a dead body in order for it to be buried. Here, I think, she is anointing in all of these aspects. Jesus is the king, the Messiah. But he's going to exercise his kingly rule through his death on the cross. And Jesus is a priest. But the type of priest he is is one who's going to offer his own body as a sacrifice. And Jesus is a prophet who's predicted his death multiple times. So she anoints him as a prophet and a priest and a king. And she also anoints his body to be prepared to be buried after he is crucified. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This unnamed woman will go down in history. Um, Then we get back to the beginning of this story, this betrayal, this plot to kill Jesus. Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, Judas, um, notice how he's named here, one of the twelve. In Mark's gospel, Judas is only mentioned twice. The first time we see his name is in a listing of the twelve disciples in chapter three. And there he's called Judas the betrayer, the one who would betray Jesus. Here, though, he's just called one of the twelve. And nowhere in Mark's gospel is Judas ever described as an evil person, or a weak person. And I think there's a reason Mark here just calls him one of the twelve. It's not the Jewish authorities who first start the snowball effect that leads to Jesus' death. It's not the Roman authorities who first start the snowball effect that leads to Jesus' death. It's one of his own. It's one of the twelve. By contrast, Bart, a theologian, would say, theologically, it's the church that actually starts putting Jesus to death. And it's a warning for you and I that even though we may have followed Jesus for three years or ten years or fifteen years, we still might be one decision away from betraying him. We never reach the stage of perfection where we have to stop trying, where we have to stop repenting, where we have to stop focusing every day on following Christ and trying to be faithful to him. Judas, one of the twelve, betrays Jesus. The woman will be remembered forever for her sacrifice and beautiful gift of worship. Judas will be remembered for betraying his king and savior. Now there's two things I want to point out here. The first is found in verse 7. You get a phrase from Jesus that I think is commonly misinterpreted and I want to blast this misinterpretation to pieces um, just so that we're all on the same page. Verse 7 Jesus says this, you will always have the poor with you. And Christians are known for quoting this verse, at least this part of the verse, in order to excuse their neglect of the poor. I'll give you an example. Rick Perry, one of our very own politicians, once was being grilled by an interviewer on a policy or something he had done that had a negative effect on the poverty level and and on certain poor populations. And he responded by quoting this verse, that biblically speaking, we'll always have the poor with us in some shape or form. The function rhetorically of him quoting that verse was, it's an unsolvable problem, right? There's nothing we can really do about it. There's always going to be poor people. And it's kind of an excuse for us sometimes to neglect the poor and to not give as much focus and attention to the poor as perhaps we should. Christians, again, do this all the time. Now, they never continue with the rest of the verse where Jesus says, but whenever you can, whenever you want to, you can do good for them. I think this is a jab from Jesus, right? He says, you'll always have the poor, but nothing's stopping you from helping them, right? You personally going out and helping them. There's actually, though, an Old Testament background to Jesus' quote here, that if understood correctly, helps you understand even more how intense this jab was from Jesus. So Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 15, verse 11 And if you would, keep your finger here and flip with me to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy chapter 15. This is a passage in the Bible where God is giving the Israelites some economic rules for how their nation should be set up. Their nation is not a free market capitalist nation. Um, They have what some would consider some pretty socialist, communist kind of laws um, where debts are forgiven. And... Even if you sold land and you bought land fairly, seven years later, you had to give it back to the person you bought it from. Um, God goes out of his way to try to make sure that everyone in Israel, the nation of Israel, is going to be equal. Um, And so we read in chapter 15, starting in verse 1, At the end of every seven years you shall grant a release, a jubilee, a freedom. And this is the number of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. Man, would we love jubilees. Every seven years, right? Anything you owe, it's gone. In fact, what would happen historically, we think, is people would actually try to rack up debt in their sixth year. (laughs) That's when you start buying a whole lot of stuff. And people stop selling a whole lot of stuff too, right? Knowing Mm -hmm. this next year is coming up. Um, He shall not exact it of his neighbor, not demand it back, his brother, because of the Lord's release. Has been reclaimed. Of a foreigner, you may exact it. So this only applied to the nation of Israel. Other nations, you can still keep this credit and debt over. But whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. Now look at verse 4. But there will be no poor among you. So God's plan for the Israelite nation that He's setting up is no poverty. There should be no person, no group of people who are poor who have less than everybody else. Reason given for, purpose clause, because the Lord, Yahweh, has blessed you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit and possess. God's saying, I've given you more than enough for everybody to have. Now I understand that over time, certain people might build up more than others. But every seven years, we're going to reset the system so that no one will be poor in the land. But this statement is a conditional statement. Look what comes next. If only you will obey the voice of the Lord your God. The plan is for there to be no poor. But for that to happen, you have to obey him. Historically, we don't have a whole lot of records of the Israelites enacting this jubilee. I mean, just reading it, if you're an economist or you follow politics, you can imagine how hard this would be to practice, right? Or to enact, uh, even in the ancient world. So we're not sure if this ever was really 100% enacted. Um, we do know eventually, right, it, it goes by the wayside. Um, it's definitely not in effect by the time of Jesus. So flip down to verse 11, and this is where we get Jesus' quote. All of a sudden we go from in verse 4, There will be no poor among you, if you obey, to For there will never cease to be poor in the land. It's a prediction from Moses. That you are sinful and greedy people. And so there's always going to be poor people around you. What Moses is not saying is that it's a practical truth of the world that there will always be poor around you. That it's an unsolvable problem. Which is how people interpret it. There will always be poor around you. So why even why even try? It's just how the world is. No, what Moses is saying is there will always be poor around uh, people around you because you're not going to obey the voice of the lord therefore he says for those who are listening every opportunity you have be generous be generous be generous when jesus quotes deuteronomy 15 here i think we should um, keep the whole context of deuteronomy 15 in mind Um, this a jab from moses jesus says you'll always have the poor among you again though this is not a fatalistic or deterministic statement Um, This is not the way the world has to be. This is the way the world is because of disobedience. And you might even hear Jesus emphasizing the you. You You'll always have the poor among you. Because you, who are complaining, aren't doing what you're supposed to be doing for the poor. This woman, however, in this time, in this situation, has done what is appropriate. Has done something beautiful for me by sacrificing. Um, So never let someone quote a text or a verse or a half of a verse, um, to try to get you out of something that Jesus so clearly wants of his disciples. Jesus is a Jesus for the poor. Jesus wants his people to be concerned with poverty, to be, um, protecting and looking out for those who are in poverty. Um, he wants his community to take care of those inside of it and outside of it who have less than, um, they need. Um, Secondly, we can compare these two stories. If we compare the sandwich, um, the bread, to the meat, um, some interesting things arise. You've got, on one hand, Judas. He's named. He has a name. He's a human being, one of the twelve. And then on the other hand of the story, the meat, we have an unnamed woman. She has no name. Judas and the chief priests are operating in Jerusalem, in the temple, where Jesus is already described as an evil system, doomed for destruction. Jesus and the woman, though, are in Bethany, in the home of Simon, a leper, and the outcast. There's money in both scenarios. An unspecified sum is promised to Judas if he would give up Jesus. Whereas with the woman, she gives up a large portion of money for Jesus to worship him and to anoint him. He betrays Jesus unto death. She anoints him unto death. He's remembered as the betrayer, she's remembered as um, the one who followed him uh sacrificed all that she had for him. The woman's sacrifice, I think, stands in stark uh, contrast to the betrayal of Judas. Um, this woman gives up so much money uh, for Jesus. We don't know the motives of why Judas betrayed Jesus. People have offered theories. We're not given a motive. Um, some say Judas... Um, was kind of tired of waiting for Jesus to start this military revolution against the Romans. And so he tried to force Jesus' hand um, by making the the, the Roman and Jewish leaders approach him. Then Jesus would finally start to fight them, and the great war would start, and they'd be free from the people of Rome. And then Jesus means what he says, and he says we're not going to fight against the Romans. And Judas is horribly mistaken when they come to arrest him. Peter draws out the sword, and Jesus says, stop. And it's shortly after then that Judas kills himself. could be a plausible explanation. Judas says, I misread this entire situation. I thought I was just trying to force his hand, but he meant what he said. Others uh, think Judas, uh, this situation right here, caused him to lose faith in Jesus. Uh, we know from John's gospel, Judas is the treasurer. He's the money keeper of the disciples. And so perhaps this rose him so much in the wrong way um, that at this point... He, he loses faith. He jumps off the team with Jesus. Again, we're not given the motives. We're also not given the motives for the woman. We don't even know who she is. In other Gospels, she's presented as a prostitute. Um, she's presented as someone who's had her sins forgiven by Jesus. It seems at least that she has had some contact with Jesus. She knows who he is. She has some sort of affection towards him. Um, and she is presented as understanding the fact that he's about to die understanding the fact that his mission is going to involve suffering that his salvation will come through his crucifixion where the disciples again do not understand this after three passion predictions they still are confused about why jesus has to die after he dies they're still confused and scared this unnamed woman though gets it and she anoints him instead of avoiding his death she anticipates it And it's her anticipation of his death and of what he's going to accomplish by his death that leads her to the sacrifice. Judas, not understanding, betrays Jesus. The woman, though, understanding Jesus' mission of suffering, understanding the salvation he'll accomplish on the cross, leads her to sacrifice all that she has. And for you and I, as we read this story, as we look inside of our own hearts and as we Seek to follow Christ more faithfully each day, and each week, and each month. I think the task for us remains the same. To ask ourselves, do we truly understand what Jesus has accomplished on the cross? Do we truly, have we truly bought into his mission of suffering? Do we understand the cruciform way of Jesus? That the way he came to bring life was through his own death? That the way he defeated the forces of evil, the way he showed his power, was by being weak on the cross. Have we really grasped, has it sunk into our own hearts that we find our identity and our life and our eternal future in Jesus' work on the cross, in his death? What looks like a defeat to the rest of the world is actually our victory. And it's in those moments when we truly and deeply understand that I think that we're called and led into a place where we're willing and able to sacrifice all that we are for Jesus. Think about the different things in your life that you make sacrifices for. If you have a family, you make sacrifices for your family. Some of us are better at it than others maybe. Sometimes some sacrifices are easier than others. If you have a job, you make sacrifices for your job. If you have a hobby, a passion on the side, volunteering or or writing or doing this or that, you make sacrifices to do those things. I wonder, though, what sacrifices do we make for Jesus? It's easy, I think, in America to be a Christian that makes largely no sacrifice. Maybe your biggest sacrifice is coming to church and listening to a boring sermon by a kid every week. What, what sacrifices are you making? What are you willing to sacrifice? Your resources, your skills, your time, your money. That There are areas in my own heart that I can, I can look into and I can see where, where I'm unwilling to sacrifice for Jesus. And in those areas, I've got to ask myself, what do I not understand about the cross? What do I not understand about Jesus' salvation for me? Why, why hasn't the truth of the cross seeped into that area of my life so that I would get to this, this place where I would be able to, to just break open the jar of my life and offer Him everything, be able to sacrifice for Him? Some of us are called to sacrifice more than others, sacrifice dreams, sacrifice goals, sacrifice Careers at times. I wanted to be a a psychiatrist. I grew up going to lots of psychiatrists. My psychiatrist made $250 an hour. I thought that was a pretty good idea. I don't make $250 an hour, but sacrifice is the Lord calling you to. And are you in that place? I mean, is is your heart in that place where you are able to make sacrifices? Or where you're at least willing and open to sacrifice? Um, There's this kind of mystical place of worship, I think, that we can get in where our hands are open and our lives are open and, and we so understand the salvation we've received from Christ that our whole life is a sacrifice to Him. Metaphorically, we're willing to give up anything for Him. And even literally, even if it costs our lives would be willing to sacrifice it for him. And I think the two go together. It's understanding his mission. It's understanding what he accomplished through his death that leads us to this place of being able to sacrifice, to be able to give all that we have, no matter what it might cost us, no matter what it might take from us. And so this morning I'd ask you to examine yourself and and ask you both of those questions Ask yourself both of those questions. In what ways do I understand, do I truly get as it seemed into my heart what Jesus has accomplished for me? In what ways have I been willing to sacrifice for him? In what ways am I not willing to sacrifice? And, and if so, why? Why not? What, what truths of the gospel have I not, have I not understood and, and dug into in order for me to be able to make those sacrifices? We don't make sacrifices to earn God's favor. That's the beauty of, of our relationship with Christ. Christ sacrificed His life for us. And the call for us is simply to sacrifice our lives in return for Him. And so at the table, when we come to receive communion, we come recognizing His sacrifice. The fact that He gave up His whole alabaster jar, everything He had, God himself became man and died on a cross, the hands of his creatures. And we come and we let that seep into our souls. And then because of that, we're able and willing to accept the call to sacrifice our all to him, however that might look individually for us, today or tomorrow or Wednesday or next month or in the next five years. But like this woman, I pray that that we would have the faith be able to leave all that we have at the feet of Jesus, that we'd be able to to see Judas to avoid his mistakes and to be able to follow after Jesus, sacrifice for him in the way of this unnamed woman. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for the time that you have given us this morning. Uh, I thank you for the stories handed down to us scriptures, um, we remember this this woman, this anonymous this woman who, who came and sacrificed so much in worship of you and, and anointing you. Um, we ask that we would be like her and that we would understand your suffering mission. We would understand the effects and, and victory of your cross. That we would let that be where we find our life and find our identity our eternal future and that from that base from that foundation Father that we'd be able to